Sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Elisa Gardner, and this spring we'll be speaking with some of the artists whose talents are standing out at a very busy time in a very busy Broadway season. Before our conversations with each week's guests, this season we will be kicking off every episode with a look at what's new on Broadway each week with Broadway Direct's own Paul Art Smith. Paul, are you there? I'm there. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. It's a very busy time on Broadway, but that's just how we like it. The busiest. It's like yeah. uh, December in Hollywood, right? You know, <laughs> exactly. Wants, it's the big like pre-award nominations rush. Right. Everyone's fitting everything in and uh-huh. yeah, seeing all the latest shows. But yeah. before we get into some of the latest openings, I'll go ahead and look, take a look at this week's news. So yeah. big news about going into a film category a little bit. Waitress will be premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. So this is the live recorded version of Waitress starring Sarah Bareilles. It was speculated that it was being filmed when it returned in the fall of 2021. It was one of the first musicals back actually after the shutdown. And people had an inkling that it was being filmed, but this is the first time it's been like officially announced in a press release and all. And it'll premiere this summer at Tribeca Film Festival in New York. And I can't wait. I mean, I love the musical, love Cerebrellis. I think this is really going to be something special. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, directed by Brett Sullivan and by Diane Paulus, who, of course, helmed the Broadway production. And um, I think the book's writer, Jesse Nelson, served as the film's creative advisor. So, you know, the same team on board, including Barry and Fran Weisler, who produced the production. Yes, yes. Yeah. I know. And I, it's interesting because in the past with like Diana, which already had like Netflix on board or sort of attached to it, and I believe Come From Away also had Apple TV Plus attached to it. This mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have like a big streamer behind it. So it'll be interesting to see where the Tribeca Film Festival could take this to theaters or to some kind of network. So I'm sure it'll be making a big splash. Yeah. Oh, it would be great to see it in theaters on the big screen. I mean, I'm I'm a huge streamer myself, but <laughs> there is something to be said for, you know, that not just the big screen itself, but the communal experience that you have when you're in a live theater, you know, you'll have not exactly that, but some simulation of it, perhaps in, a, uh, in a movie theater. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure at the Tribeca Film Festival, the audience is going to be filled with like fans and lovers of the show. So it'll be definitely electric. And now we also have some more news about the next season. I know we're still in this present season, but news keeps on coming from the 2023-2024 season. So coming to Broadway this summer, as we know, Here Lies Love will be opening at the Broadway Theater. And we now have our star, Ariel Jacobs, will be starring as Mel DeMarcos. This musical has had a long road to Broadway. I mean, I think it premiered almost a decade ago off Broadway. You actually had a chance to see it, right? I did. I did. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was very interactive. I believe the the way the seating is being done on Broadway, you have your choice of whether or not you can be one of those people who one of the cast members sort of prods to dance with them, yeah. <laughs> which actually happened to me. And I was oh covering it as a critic. <laughs> but um, no, I, I saw it with Ruthie Ann Miles, who was just spectacular um, in the role. That was like a breakout role for her, I believe. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, Ariel Jacobs is uh, joining the cast as Imelda, and she's got tons of experience from In the Heights, Wicked, Aladdin, High School Musical. So, uh, you know, maybe yeah. it'll be a, a breakout role for her as well. 
I know. I'm excited to see this turn from her. I actually got to see her off Broadway and between the lines last summer and she was just oh, you know, okay. so charming in that. So I can't wait to see her take on this role. That's I have not been able to see the show yet, but I will be there. And I hear this role is like quite an intense role. So it shall be yeah. exciting to see. And yeah, the seating there is unlike anything that Broadway has seen before. I feel like maybe like the closest comparison is like Great Comet, but even then like it sounds like it's going to be something that is just so one of a kind and unique and will definitely be taking Broadway by storm. And it's great that they're giving, uh, you know, giving us a, a sort of heads up about, you know, <laughs> you, here's your options. You don't yes. necessarily have to. So if you're shy and you don't want to be kind of reeled into the action, you don't have to do that necessarily. Yeah. They very clearly outlined all the different seating options. So it'll be, you know, if you want to be part of it, you can stand with the actors. If you don't want to be part of it, you know, the rear mezzanine is always there. And it looks like it's like a great view from there as well. So it should be a very interesting right. experience. If you're an introvert, you can still enjoy the show. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and Lisa, you actually had the chance to break some news about 54 Below this week in the New York Times. Yes, it is becoming a nonprofit after 11 years in operation. And of course, 54 Below is um, a hugely popular forum for Broadway stars, as well as rising performers and composers. Um, you know, they, they do a lot of stuff with lesser known shows, with anniversaries, with theme shows that can focus on pop music or cult musicals. Yeah, they have a whole bunch of stuff going on there. And, um, you know, the owner, one of the owners, when I spoke with him, admitted they've been struggling a little financially, mm. as a lot of places have been, but they also have certain artistic ambitions, uh, more diversity. By diversity, I mean in, in every sense of the word, the, the types of artists, uh, gender, race, everything. Um, and they just want to uh, create some artist subsidies, ticket subsidies. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm excited to see what changes are made and if any at all. But like, it should be an interesting experience, especially because, as you said, it's been such a great space for cabaret acts, for rising stars. And I've been able to go plenty of times and it's just always an exciting space. It is. And it's interesting what you say about changes, because, yes, it will be interesting because I get the sense and I could be wrong that it's going to be more of an evolution. That they're going to be kind mm -hmm. of going in this direction that they've been going in, but will have maybe more liberty to do so um, with funding coming from they're hoping for, you know, big and small donors. They put a board together. So, like I said, we'll see. You never know with these things, but they certainly have a lot of goodwill on their side. A lot of artists love that house and it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, incredible. Can't wait to visit that space again. And to wrap up this sort of news portion this week, if you need something to listen to after this podcast, of course, you can <laughs> head over to your streaming service um, and listen to Almost Famous. It's the original Broadway cast recording, and it did have a short life on Broadway. So if you weren't able to catch it in that time, you can relive some of the tunes. Um, it has an incredible cast led by Casey Likes, who's going into Back to the Future this summer, you know, uh, introducing Casey Likes, this this show did, and then also the amazing Soleil Pfeiffer, who oh, is yeah. just one of our brightest talents. Yeah, Soleil Pfeiffer, I've seen her in several roles, mostly like more traditional soprano roles, and and also Evita, and that is a that yes. is a giant talent, a giant vocal talent, and and she proved in this production that uh, she can be you know funny and goofy and uh, sexy as well. So well, she was yeah. actually very sexy in Evita too. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, I've been a fan of hers for a while. I got to see yeah. her actually um, in West Side Story at the Hollywood Bowl, which was like her first, like, I feel like a major project. Yeah. So I feel like I've sort of been like on this journey with her as like watching her star rise. And it's so great to see her land on Broadway at last. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she does next. And she actually played Guinevere in the original workshop for what turned out to be the production of Camelot mm. uh, that just opened on Broadway recently. I would have loved to have heard that. It was a, a benefit performance, so I couldn't go, but um, I'm sure she was spectacular in that. So she is definitely a, a star to watch and a voice to continue listening to. 100%. And as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, this is the busiest time on Broadway. And so many plays are opening. Just this past week alone, three opened on Broadway. One of them on Wednesday being Peter Pan Goes Wrong, which actually Elisa and I ran into each other at the show. Not only did we run into each other, we sat right next to each other. <laughs> that yeah. was, we both uh, had a lot of fun, as did our companions. I brought my yeah. daughter. <laughs> yes, I brought my friend Emma. And it was just you know, my, I told, I told you my face was hurting from smiling. It's just, it's just the most fun time. Yes, definitely. Yeah. A lot of fun. And then on Thursday, the Thanksgiving play, which you'll be hearing a lot about during this episode, mm -hmm. opened at the Hayes Theater. And on Sunday, Prima Facie opened at the Golden Theater starring Jodie Comer. And this is just fresh off of so many Olivier Award wins, one best play and best actress for Jodie Comer earlier this month. So coming in with a lot of, you know, acclaim. And new on this site this week, we have a five questions piece with Stark Sands of Anne Juliet. You know, he's one of our great talents. This is his first time back on Broadway, I believe, since Kinky Boots. So it's great to see him back on stage playing William Shakespeare himself. And as always, you can head to Broadway Direct for the latest coverage and news of this Broadway season, as well as across all of our social platforms at Broadway Direct. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And as Paul mentioned, we are going to be speaking today with a couple of guests who are involved in one of the productions that just opened on Broadway. Our guests today are playwright Larissa Fasthorse and director Rachel Chapkin, who are collaborating on Larissa's very much acclaimed play, The Thanksgiving Play, now running at the Hayes Theater. which has already received wide praise for off-Broadway, regional, and online productions, marks Larissa's Broadway debut and makes her the first known female Native American playwright to be produced there. But she has been active as a playwright and choreographer for years, and she has also worked in film and been the recipient of a number of prestigious awards, grants, and fellowships. She is the co-founder of Indigenous Direction, a leading consulting company for Indigenous arts and audiences. Rachel is one of the most in-demand directors working today, as well as a writer and dramaturg. Her previous Broadway credits are Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, which earned her a Tony nomination for Best Director of a Musical, and Hadestown, for which she won that award. She's also worked extensively off-Broadway, winning three Obie Awards, and in regional theater and in London. And she's artistic director of the Brooklyn-based company The Team. Rachel, Larissa, welcome to Stage Door Sessions. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, Larissa, since this is your first Broadway production, I'd love it if you could share a little bit of your backstory. I believe you started out as a ballet dancer. And in terms of your heritage, you grew up in South Dakota as part of the Chicago Lakota Nation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how these factors came to shape your artistic vision and direction. I mean, I know that's not something you can answer in 400, uh, rather 140 words, but <laughs> or 400 words. But um, if you could give us just a little background. Yeah. Yeah. I did start my career as a, a professional ballet dancer and did that until I was almost 30. And then um, 
hit that, you know, uh, retirement age so young that ballet dancers do. Uh, yeah. and, and then you realize, wow, I'm, I'm just about turned 30 and I have a whole lot of life left and I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, so I was really fortunate that um, Career Transitions for Dancers, which is now under Actors Fund, but they were independent then, came into my life. I'm Los Angeles based and they have an office there and they gave me career counseling to help me find my next path, which was writing. I actually started in film and television first. And I'm like the only writer in Los Angeles that left film and TV for theater and have been working very happily in theater for over 12 dozen years or more, more than a dozen years. And, um, and now I've recently returned back to film and television again, fortunately for me, right before the pandemic. But um, I think for sure you can see, especially in this play, um, how much my movement background affects my writing. I, I see things very much spatially. I am also very very collaborative and really this show especially is, is a director's show. There's a lot of movement sections that are written to the show where I really just kind of write in the storytelling of it, but every director does them incredibly differently. And um, I love that. I love that about space and movement and how, how much you can tell in a story in that way. And so I think that's definitely evident in all of my pieces. Yeah. Larissa, you've described this as a comedy within a satire, and it focuses on a group of four people who've come together to create a Thanksgiving pageant for an elementary school that's also celebrating Native American History Month. At what point did you become involved, Rachel? Yeah, so um, uh, I've known Larissa for probably over a decade now and have been a huge admirer of her work for years. And I think at like the height of the pandemic, she reached out about the fact that Second Stage was planning on programming the show and uh, would I want to collaborate on it. And I was totally over the moon about the thought of working together. And uh, she sent me the script because I had seen the production of Playwrights, but I had never read the play. And I just could not... I mean, I think I just devoured it in like one, you know, intense hour-long sitting, both just laughing and thinking oh my God, this is fucking brutal <laughs> um, in the best way, in the ways that um, uh, certainly I come to the theater for to like get both knocked down and uh, discomforted in how I think about the world and have that and then also have the humor hold me uh, within that um, and get to go on this journey with these characters. So for me, it was just like a very swift yes um, and a delicious production process ever since. Yeah. I'm curious if the play, I mean, I'm sure it's evolved, um, but whether that evolution has been informed by changes in our cultural climate and conversation over the past few years, because this was, I think you started developing it, Larissa, in 2015, and there have been several productions since it ran off Broadway before COVID struck, and there were regional productions. So how, how has it changed or evolved? Yeah, it's changed a lot of ways. Um, first off, you know, from the script side of it, um, I obviously <laughs> did want to update it. So it's there's a lot of references that are current to where we are now, to the last few years of history are included. Um, so a lot of topical things have changed and the way we refer to some new if you will, issues <laughs> that we're all grappling with on how to talk about and how to deal with and how to, what we should be thinking about. And then, of course, the fantastic part about theater is that um, I have this new collaborator here that I'm working with, with Rachel, and that together, um, 
we can work on this together and, and create something very new. It obviously has to fulfill Rachel's vision as a director. And then, you know, that was been the last like year and a half of talking, but then there's the size of the house and it being Broadway and, 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 and making it feel like that size and that scope that you want a Broadway show to feel like. And then on top of all that, then we added in all these amazing designers. We have such an incredible design team and it was so great to be in the room with them doing design meetings and coming up with ways to keep, you know, evolving the show. So it represents all these incredible artistic voices. And then finally, we got our actors and we have this incredible group of actors that are really um, collaborative and participatory and have such smart, great ideas and have their own strengths in comedy and acting. And so we've all been um, collaborating all the way through. So it just keeps evolving every step of the way as we've been putting together this new production. And I yeah. can testify that Larissa is one of the most collaborative <laughs> artists I've ever worked with and has just like helped create, I think with our, I'm thinking about our actors in particular, but it's come up with our design team as well, just a place where people feel free to ask questions and like figure out. Cause I think what's beautiful about the play is it's actually uh, the jokes are clear, but the right answer is not. <laughs> and so I think that has come up again and again in the rehearsal room uh, while we're working on this. And it's been, yeah, it's just been a, a delicious kind of community journey, actually, I would say working on the show. Yeah, it sounds a lot like life. Uh, no clear answers. <laughs> yep. So, um, well, tell me a little bit about the actors. You have some wonderful names here, uh, you know, people known to stage fans, the TV fans. Since it was a collaborative process, I'm gleaning from what you're saying, Rachel. Um, how did you come to choose these particular actors to usher in this production? Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> I can say... The cast is jaw-droppingly good. They really are. They're just like they're them as craftspeople, as comic uh, assassins is it, just extraordinary. And um, I, I have to say, like, uh, obviously we selected these folks after, uh, you know, long diving into their bodies of work and, um uh, and at the same time, I don't know that I could have imagined kind of how beautifully touch wood this foursome would work together. And they each feel like such different instruments in terms of uh, the kind of comic arsenal. <laughs> um, uh, so I think there's a palpable feeling of different textures. Some are like, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite beautiful. Yeah. And I'd say also, I mean, they're all, I mean, you're fortunate with this type of casting. We don't get to have them together beforehand um, and none of them knew each other. And so we're really fortunate. They are such an incredibly generous group of people. They're with each other, with the text, with, you know, the rest of the production. It's really beautiful to watch and very touching for me as the writer with my first play on Broadway to have such a generous uh, group of actors that are, you know, all have some reputation to think about and are really throwing everything behind this piece and being so excited and supportive and doing such incredible work. 
Yeah, we should say uh, they are the two-time Tony Award winner, Katie Finneran, and um, Emmy nominees and well-known TV actors such as Darcy Carden, Chris Sullivan, Scott Foley. So it's a, it's a pretty phenomenal lineup. Yes, it really is. Rachel, I read that when Larissa uh, first approached you, you asked if she was sure she didn't want to see a director of color. Clearly, she wanted you, but how did your concerns and your obvious respect for what this material would demand affect your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think when when I brought it up, I, I was thinking about it, as I know Larissa was very consciously, on a couple fronts. One is, of course, job creation, because every, you know, opportunity is, a, is an opportunity. Um, and then the other is thinking about the critique within the work itself. And one of the you know, brilliant things that Larissa said. Um, and it was immediate was, well, I need your expertise. And it was, uh, you know, my expertise on whiteness as a white person who, and now I am at risk of directly quoting the show, but I may as well go for it. <laughs> a white person who has spent years and years thinking about my whiteness um, and doing so in um, white constituency groups and also doing so in in very racially diverse rooms. So um, I think it, it is like a combination of of reflecting on that and making sure that, uh, you know, there's like a particular moment where two of the characters zoom in on a, on another character who's a native artist, uh, we believe. And they are almost, there's like a hunger that is really kind of frightening from them in terms of wanting to use this character's story um, and, and co-opt it essentially and appropriate it and make it a part of the art they're making. And I think, you know, I, that's like a moment that is visible to me and I have watched it and witnessed it happened. And that knowledge at the same time doesn't mean that there's not then space in the process that we would make for Larissa or I'm thinking about Jeanette Harrison, our amazing associate director, who's herself a native artist to like be able to reflect on or fill in that experience, which they have had personally, which I have only been sort of a secondary witness to. So I think it's trying to do process wise, it's trying to do both. It's not being shy about my expertise of like, (laughs) just having, you know, fucking shamefully been I have probably said almost every single thing these characters say at different points in my life. And I I don't do that now. And also it's real. And so like in terms of the play calling up, calling forth both um, embarrassment and shame and, and then also sitting with you via humor in that difficulty um, and shyness, which I think white people have to just keep getting over, right, in terms of our own resilience. Um, I do that too. So that's a very, very personal experience in the show. Yeah. No, I've read where you, Larissa, have spoken about the importance of including white people in this conversation and how there's a danger of white people simply being well-meaning but not engaging in real dialogue. You know, it's it's yeah. much easier to do that. I'm assuming that you and Rachel discussed this, and I'm wondering how it was addressed by you in, in dealing with the actors. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and honestly, <laughs> Rachel's carrying a lot. She's our lone white person on the entire creative team. So <laughs> she, has to, she, she feels the way I usually feel when I'm in a theater um, and I'm the only Native American person, but we have several people that identify from Native communities with us in the, um, on the team in the theater here, which is fantastic in different departments, including creative. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something for sure that we've had a lot of discussions about in the room. The, the beauty, uh, I will say, of working with these particular um, humans in our cast is that they care really deeply about everything this play is addressing. And they care very deeply about their position in helping to tell the story in a way that um, is can be heard and seen as well as being funny. And it's, so we've had a lot of discussion in the room, a lot of really deep, fantastic discussions. I was like, oh, this is how, and we all were like, oh, well, sometimes we feel like we're in the play and then we're like, yeah, but this is how it should go. Like we should be able to have these discussions. And I think, you know, Rachel and I have both worked together um, in collaboration to be sure that this is a space where everything can be said, everything can be asked, everything can be put out there hard questions, hard moments, uh, hard emotions, all those things can happen together so that we all feel comfortable and confident telling the story in the best way while also making it a fun night at the theater, which is a tricky thing, right? That's the hard thing about doing a comedy and a satire. You have to get both of those things right. And it's a constant calibration that we all work on together. Yeah. I love that description, a a comedy within a satire. Um, The world has changed a lot in the past five to 10 years, exponentially, some would say. Uh, But this is still the first play by a Native American woman that we know of to arrive on Broadway. And I'm wondering if either of you ever worry that the progress that we have seen will be enduring, or if it's to some extent performative, for that matter. I worry about it endlessly. Yeah. I mean, has the world changed that much? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have people just become aware of what the world is like uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, uh, meaning white people, <laughs> people of color always knew, um, you know, and I, yes, there are more women and there are more people of color in some of these spaces like Broadway, but yeah, I worry about it constantly. You know, the last known Native American playwright on Broadway is Lynn Riggs. That was in the first half of the last century. I mean, it's been a really freaking long time. And so I, you know, desperately hope that I'm not the only one this century. And then we have another one maybe in the next century. Um, you know, but that that's not much progress that it takes, you know, whatever. I can't do math, 80 years or whatever between Native American playwrights on Broadway. That, that, that's, that, that's really no progress. I mean, it is, but it isn't really. Um, so... Yeah, I'm constantly afraid of it and constantly worried that maybe we're not going to get any farther. I I would just I would agree since you'd asked both and just say, like, I worry about white fatigue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's actually a key theme in the play and in the last section of the play. Um, And it's something that we've been discussing as we kind of figure out how to best land the play for 2023. Yeah. What sort of feedback have you gotten from Native audience members or or any audience members, for that matter, that you found particularly meaningful or surprising or that's that stood out for you in, in their reactions to the material? The best feedback that I have gotten and what I would hope for is that I am still talking about the play tomorrow and that at breakfast the next day, me and you know my friends, me and my family, we were still talking about it and asking questions and wondering 
and trying to come up with answers or even just wonder why. And that's the thing I, I, I would love more than anything people to just leave this play wondering why did I know these things? Why was I never told these things before? Why are we not taught these things? Um, why is this the first time if it is, you know, that I've heard a lot of these things and, and then start, you know, investigating. Cause it's, it's an, it's one thing to look up some facts online or, you know, I don't know, whatever you do, you know, do folks go to the library still? I hope so. My mom's a librarian. Um, you know, go to the library and learn some things. But it's another thing to change the systems of why we don't know these things and why we have to find out about contemporary indigenous experiences and indigenous history separate from the systems that we're we're in here in America. And how has the play impacted you in your time working on it, Rachel? I mean, it sounds like it's been pretty revelatory. What in particular have you taken away from it, learned from it, had to think about more? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I didn't know this history. Uh, I knew I shouldn't say that. I knew some of the history before, but there are definitely stories that come up within the show that were new to me. And then I think just also the conversations that we've had through the making of it have been, well, A, I've peed myself a lot of times. delight. But equally, you know, the, the, I, I think actually particularly in an educational setting of like, um, one of the things that Larissa and I have been talking about is all of the new laws that have come up around the debate of teaching about race and histories other than white histories in our elementary, middle school and high school classrooms. And, you know, what's what too often now gets called critical race theory, not that there's anything wrong with CRT, just that it's like an inappropriate deployment of that term. Mm-hmm. Um very, very coded language in terms of thinking about from white parents' perspectives, what they're willing to have their children exposed to. And it's the truth. And like those debates are happening now. And they're not just happening in Tennessee. They're happening in school boards across New York State. They're happening in, in New Jersey. Um, and, and it's huge. And so like actually the urgency of the violence that is getting talked about, and it's the violence of erasure and the violence that's literally being done to bodies still today, in part because we're unwilling as white people to look at and sit with and make practical changes from based on the truth of the history and the present day realities. It's just like, it's huge. And I think it's, uh, uh, I think I have been moved personally by just the living urgency of all of that. Yeah. Well, sort of a way of wrapping up, what is your hope that Broadway audiences will take away from this particular production of a play that is obviously very funny and very brutal and seems very necessary? Yeah, I think it's important first to keep in mind that Broadway audiences are not a monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know actually, I um, maybe I'm just teeing you up to talk mm-hmm. about this more, but I've heard Larissa talk about how you can hear different parts of the audience respond to different parts of the story. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I was saying, there's certain jokes that 
draft after draft, production after production, people have been like, well, I don't know if everybody's going to get that. Like, that's okay. That, that, that joke isn't for everybody. That joke is for my native folks. So that joke is for my BIPOC friends in general. And it'll be funny because when that joke comes up in you know, the first audience, suddenly you'll hear a group of native people, native American people over wherever in the house. I'm like, Oh, there they are. Now I know exactly where they are. And everyone else will be like, Oh, wow, it is funny to them. Like, <laughs> I didn't get it. Uh, which is great. Cause I, I, you don't, you know, that's part of life, right? You don't get everything. Right. You don't have to get everything. Everything's not for you. And even if you're white, everything's not for you. Um, and that's okay. Uh, and it's okay to uh, have that and yet have it in a fun way that we get to enjoy being together. We get to enjoy coming to a theater together and laughing and having a great time. Everyone is made fun of, I'd say in the show, everyone has to look at themselves and laugh, including myself as a native American woman. You know, there's things I'm like, um, why do I do that? Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things in there for everybody, but they're, you know, told like, you know, in a, in a way that I hope people also get to have a good time and enjoy each other together. Yeah. And leave having a lot to talk about and yeah. a lot to think about. Uh, once again, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedules, I'm sure, to join us. Uh, we are all very much looking forward to this production. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. A pleasure. And for all things Broadway, and to find tickets to your next show, visit broadwaydirect.com. If you liked our show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to share and rate Stage Door Sessions so other theater fans can find us as well. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct and the Niederlander Organization with Iris Chan, Aaron Provasnik-Wagner, and Paul Art Smith, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again on Broadway. <laughs>